Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome back to another episode of Mormon Discussion. This one I'm really excited for. I've got with me three wonderful ladies, and we're going to sit down tonight and talk about the latest essay on LDS.org in regards to priesthood, uh, women in the temple. I would obviously like to go to the three of you first, have you guys introduce yourselves. Uh, Suzette, you've been on the podcast before, uh, so we've got Suzette Smith. Suzette, would you mind just giving us a brief introduction? Sure. Um, I'm Suzette Smith. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, professionally, uh, I went to BYU. I'm a BYU grad. Um, went to uh, Bentley University for my MBA, and now I work as a professional organizer here um, in the in the DC area. Uh, as far as church, uh, I'm a lifer. Went on a mission to Australia. Currently serving in the primary, and I'm also on the executive board of Exponent. That's incredible, Christy Money. Oh, this is your first time on Mormon Discussion. Would you mind introducing yourself to the to the audience? Sure. And Bill, thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. No problem. I I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, I, I got my PhD at BYU. So go Cougars too, Suzette. Woohoo! Um, I <laughs> yeah. I um. So I, I have a private practice here in Georgia and do Skype sessions too and um, marriage counseling and, and uh, m- uh, Mormon women's mental health. I'm uh, I'm a born in the covenant uh, member too, and um, I've yeah I'm always interested in in talking about uh, Mormon women and and authority. So yeah, this is this is going to be an exciting podcast. Excellent, excellent. And to round out the group, Farah, would you mind uh, sharing a brief bio of you? Sure. I am uh, Farah Sneddon, and I did my undergraduate and my master's at Brigham Young. Uh, all three of us, go figure. And, right. uh, and studied American literature there, and then I did Ph.D. work at the University of Georgia in Athens. So I think Christy and I probably have a connection with that. That's um, right. I'm there right now. There wow. you go. <laughs> go dogs. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's see, I did work in, in multicultural and early American literature in my PhD work. And now I am a pretty much stay at home mom, professional volunteer, and I do research on the side in, in early American lit and early, Mar- er, early Mormon women. Uh, I am currently the feature editor for Sabbath Pastorals with Exponent, and I have spoken at several different retreats and conferences about women's practices with healing and blessing rituals. I, I think, obviously, this listening audience is going to know what these LDS.org gospel topic essays, what they are and, and when they've kind of showed up. I'm still surprised that generally, I think the general membership is still somewhat unaware that these are even being put on. I just talked to a good friend this morning who was having kind of a an interaction with his bishop and was 
asking if the bishop was aware of these, and he didn't have a clue. But the one we're going to talk about tonight was just released the other day. It's titled Joseph Smith's Teachings About Priesthood, Temple, and Women, which was the reason I wanted to have some female voices on the podcast and uh, and really appreciate the three of you being on. I I guess it would be important maybe to to start off with just the title of this one, and I want to throw this out to you guys, the the title itself kind of catches me a little off guard. It, it seems to want to talk about Joseph Smith's teachings about priesthood and then kind of temple and women secondary. But really, the article seems to have its major emphasis on on women's roles throughout church history in terms of priesthood in the temple. Does that make sense? And, and what do you guys make of just the title? I absolutely agree with you. I think that it's a title that doesn't quite fit. Uh, it is awkward. And it really does look like the focus is going to be on Joseph Smith and his teachings on these three distinct things, when really the whole thing is about women and and women's involvement in the priesthood and women's involvement in the temple. Yeah, it should have been named Women and Their Involvement in the Priesthood and Temple as taught by Joseph Smith. (laughs) It's like almost completely backwards. But anyway, it is what it is, but it seems odd. Right. I agree. Yeah, me too. This essay shows up, and I think most of us have known, at least rumored to be, that this essay was being kind of worked on and was in in the process at some point was going to come out. Uh, maybe your guys' thoughts, just away from the essay itself, just the thought of it being worked on and and it you know at some point was going to be released. Why this essay to you guys, regardless of what it was going to say, just for Mormons who are listening, why this essay was going to be important. Uh, your thoughts may be on the importance of it. I think that the church, certainly the women have been hungry for more information, for more, you know, further light knowledge on this, this topic. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's coming out has been important. But I do think that it, it being here is important. And now that I've read it, um, I do think that the church is trying to communicate with its members. Um, as Farah and I have talked about earlier, I'm probably not the audience that this essay is trying to reach, but the fact that they're trying to communicate with their members in some forum, I think is, is a positive thing for all of the discussion, all of the, um, the essays. It also gives us a point of reference, a place to start. I'm encouraged by the fact that it, uses Joseph Smith as the point of reference because I think when it comes to women in authority or women in power, Joseph Smith, he's the prophet of the restoration. And I think he did the most powerful things. And so I like that they use that as a as a point of reference. And I'll just say one more thing about its importance before I let uh, Farrah and Christy talk. And that is in reading Nyland's response to this, she mentions that the language around priesthood has shifted. And I think that's really important as well. And I think will be impactful in sort of shifting the dialogue around women and um, authority. And instead of just using priesthood sort of as this sort of blanket term, they say the word priesthood authority or priesthood blessings, and they always qualify the priesthood which I think is important and I think is also a positive because it leaves room open to continue to explore what it means for women and the priesthood. So that's some of my thoughts. I agree with you, Suzette. Uh, I, I really do like some of the things that this, that this essay does when, in terms of your question, Bill, when you asked uh, what our thoughts was, were just knowing that this was coming out. Um, I was really hopeful. And um, at the same time, not, 
too hopeful because I recognize that, like Suzette said, I am not the intended audience for this. Uh, but just having a conversation that is, um, that is coming from the 12, that is, that is given that stamp of approval by them about women recognizes that they, that they see the need that this be something that's discussed in general public. And I was also hopeful because I, I really, have a desire for this conversation to be able to be legitimized in our own individual relief societies and wards and elders quorums and high, high priest quorums. Uh, and when the church is willing to put an essay about it, then it's something that we can talk about without fear of repercussions. Um, I also love that the, the gospel essays, gospel topic essays have had really thorough um, in notes and citations. And even for a, a lay member who might not be in any way an academic, those in notes are give a really good jumping off starting point for, for the ability to go through and, and read a little bit more deeply into what uh, historians and academics have to say about the topic. Yes. Oh, yes. And so this is Christy. I absolutely agree, Farah. Um, those footnotes are, are amazing. And I think that that for me is, I think, the biggest win is that that uh, people can can go down to the bottom, look, and and see for themselves every single one of those those uh, references, including I mean, some that that you can find in the Joseph Smith Papers. I mean, a lot that you can find in the the Joseph Smith Papers, which is you know the church's own site, and and read them in in the original handwriting of you know Joseph Smith's secretary of of uh, you know Eliza R. Snow. I mean, that's that's phenomenal, and so I'm so glad that that we've we've got that. I mean, ever. Ever the delusional optimist, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was definitely excited to see that. Great. So should we jump into it? Yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Let's do it. So I'll uh, I'll read some of these sections, and then I'll stop at certain points, get your thoughts. I don't, I don't know that we need to stop after maybe every single paragraph, but anytime you guys see something that I'm not seeing, that I'm not pausing for, just interrupt me and say, hey, I'd like to add something to this, and, and we'll certainly get that. But the... The essay starts off, it says, uh, women and men enjoy many opportunities for service in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, both within local congregations and at the church-wide level. Among other things, Latter-day Saint women preach sermons and Sunday meetings in the church's general conference, serve full-time proselyting missions, perform and officiate in holy rites in the church's temples, and lead organizations that minister to families, other women, young women, and children. They participate in priesthood councils at the local and general levels. Professional women teach Latter-day Saint history and theology at church universities and in the church's educational programs for youth. Because only men are ordained to priesthood office, however, questions have arisen about women's standing in the church. This essay provides relevant historical context for these important questions and explains Joseph Smith's teachings about women and priesthood authority. I actually am really all right with that one sentence that starts with because, because only men are ordained to priesthood office. And the reason that that is okay, that sits all right with me is because in the last year, in the last two years, we finally have the church saying priesthood is more than just an office. This sentence doesn't say because only men have the priesthood. It says they're only men are ordained to priesthood office, which leaves open priesthood authority and priesthood power to be something that women can have as well. Now, I wish that that were explicitly stated there, but it does imply that, and that makes me hopeful about things. Yeah, and we first started to see that in, in uh, 2013 with uh, with Oaks's talk. He started yes. to differentiate, mm-hmm. so that, mm-hmm. that was definitely a, a win, for sure. Yeah. Well, I wanted to mention uh, something that Jana Reese mentions in her response blog 
uh, and that is the language is very action oriented. So they're saying women preach sermons. They, um, they lead. What other verbs do they use? They perform. They proselytize. And this, I think, is also a bit of a switch because in the past we've heard a lot about women receiving priesthood blessings, receiving priesthood ordinances, and it was more passive language when around priesthood that women were the passive recipients, where now this language talks about women being more active. The, the drawback, of course, in, in this opening paragraph for me is that it doesn't say that this all of these things that women do are is limited that they don't show where the, there's a cutting off point they don't show that there is a ceiling for women um which we all know that there is there is a ceiling for women there is a place where their ability to participate in our faith ends however I do agree with Jana Reese that these are action verbs, and I think that's a positive thing. Nylon says, and, and I'm going to quote this, this is the paragraph that I wish I had written myself. <laughs> so she said that when we continually assert that women's interaction with priesthood is receiving is receiving all of the blessings and privileges of the priesthood, we negate the power of action that is inherent in a man's experience with it. We pretend like being an agent of priesthood doesn't matter. Yesterday's essay confirmed that when women minister, preach, proselytize, and participate in councils, they are exercising priesthood authority. And I, I think that hits, that's, that's right on. And, and that is something that we really haven't seen a lot coming from the church. And I appreciate that. Again, it's not explicitly stated. It has to be inferred, but it does exist in this essay. As I looked at this first paragraph, I'm, I'm a big guy for words. Words mean things. And when they use this sentence that Latter-day Saint women preach sermons, that put a whole different picture in my mind because I think we often refer to Latter-day Saints in our local chapels giving talks. We don't really in our LDS vernacular talk about preaching sermons. But the idea of the phrase preaching a sermon seems to almost carry some level of authority within itself. Does that, does that make any sense? It absolutely does. And, and I totally agree with you. And if you jump to the second paragraph, am I, am I taking the lead here and, and walking over you? No, please do. If you jump halfway into that second paragraph, it says, uh, it, it acknowledges that women have a ministry. So by the same authority, Joseph Smith organizes the Relief Society and formally defines and authorizes a major aspect of women's ministry. And calling what women do a ministry is is absolutely giving us an authority, as in preaching a sermon is. Let me uh, let me read that one, and let's get uh, Suzette and Christie's thoughts on this as well. The the restoration. This is the second paragraph of this essay. The restoration of the priesthood authority through the prophet Joseph Smith is a fundamental doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Early in his ministry, Joseph Smith received priesthood authority from heavenly messengers. With that authority, he organized the church, conferred priesthood upon other men, and ordained them to offices in the priesthood. By this same authority, Joseph Smith organized the Relief Society as part of the structure of the church, which formally defined and authorized a major aspect of women's ministry, which you pointed out. All this was done to prepare the saints to participate in the ordinances of the temple, which were introduced soon after the founding of the Relief Society. At the same time of his death, the revelatory vision imparted to Joseph Smith was securely in place. Women and men could receive and administer sacred priesthood ordinances in holy temples, which would help prepare them to enter the presence of God one day. That to say that Joseph Smith's vision was securely in place at the time of his death, <laughs> uh, 
I I don't think so. I just yeah. don't think that we know what Joseph Smith intended for the women of the church. The Relief Society was really new. Things were still being sorted out. And I, I just think there's so much interpretation. The church offers an interpretation here in this paper, which I think is is fine. However, there's there's lots of other ways you could see Joseph's work. And so I think the hardest part in all of this is what did Joseph Smith intend? And I don't think it's secure. I don't think it's securely in place. So I'll say that. And I agree with Suzette's assessment. <laughs> As do I. Um, we know that Emma certainly said that Joseph had things he was going to do for women and for her in regards to both the Relief Society and polygamy. Uh, she maintained that to all the way to her death, that there was some more things he was going to do had he not passed away. And we also know that um, it's a Susa Young Gates talks about how the privileges, this is her quote, in fact, quote, the privileges and powers outlined by the prophet in those first meetings have never been granted to women in full even yet. So we know that there were more things that he talked about to them that we have not seen realized. Yeah, and I found that sentence odd, too, because it feels like, as I read church history, that Joseph Smith, as he work, as he's working out theology, seems to be as chaotic at the end of his life in doing that than any other period in his life. That That had he lived another year or two or five, that there would have been a lot of changes and shifts within his own perspective and paradigm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So let's tackle here the next part, which is early Latter-day Saint understandings of priesthood. And and I the title here, and I'll just say this before I read it, is almost kind of prepping us to understand that, hey, early on we might have done some things, but that was just as we kind of sorted it out. And, and so now maybe some of those things don't exist anymore, but that's the reason why. Uh, almost kind of comes off as why this title is worded this way. Does that – I mean, again, I don't – I don't want to overstep my bounds maybe and say something that nobody else is thinking, but did that come across any of the three of you? Oh yeah. I think it, I think it's, it's prepping for how we understand things today versus how the saints understood things then as if they're different. Right. Right. So Mm -hmm. that paragraph starts out. It says uh, the restoration of priesthood authority came at a time of intense religious excitement in the United States. This excitement was driven in part by questions about divine authority, who had it, how it was obtained, and whether it was necessary. In the early 19th century, Christian, most Christians believed that the authority to act in God's name had remained on the earth since the time of Jesus' mortal ministry. Joseph Smith taught that Christ's priesthood was lost after the deaths of the ancient apostles and had been newly restored through angelic ministration. Even so, many Latter-day Saints initially understood the concept of priesthood largely in terms common for the day. In 1830s America, the word priesthood was defined as the office or character of a priest and the order of men set apart for sacred offices, identifying priesthood with religious office and the men who held it. Early Latter-day Saints likewise thought of priesthood primarily in terms of ordination to ecclesiastical office and authority to preach and perform religious rites. As in most other Christian denominations during this era, Latter-day Saint men alone held priesthood offices, served formal proselyting missions, and performed ordinances like baptism and blessing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If anyone else wants to jump in, yeah, jump in in front of me, Christy. Please do. Sure. Well, okay. So when I, when I read that, um, I, it, it took me back to, um, you know, some, some of my, 
my earlier experiences and stories that I, I had engaged with um, when I was trying to find out for myself, like, okay, what what is going on with this word ordained? Um, because I'd read, you know, I, I was, you know, a scripture mastery <laughs> um, student in, in seminary. You know, I, I, I got the medals. Woohoo! And so, um, you know, in DNC 25, it talks about, um, about Emma being ordained and, and about that, that, well, and this is in, in DNC 25, I think it's a little earlier, in talking about missionaries that, um, that no, no one, um, can go forth and preach my gospel except they, they be ordained. And, um, and so, and, and we know that, that, yeah, of course we have, we have amazing sister missionaries doing this. So, um, I just remember, it, you know, just that paragraph just takes me back to the thrill that I, that I received when I, I was reading about um, these early stories of women um, that, that interact, interacted with Joseph, some even his, his plural wives, who were using that word, ordain. And even um, as, you know, as this paragraph talks about the order of the priesthood, um, they would even say, I... Um, Joseph gave us every order of the priesthood, um, and, and I and I believe um, in that context, they, uh, this this one sister was pushing back a bit against how you know over time, and the essay points this out that this was taken away, um, and and these women were like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Joseph Joseph ordained us, so um, I do think that um, that a paragraph like this. And there, in subsequent others, as this goes along, this is where it starts to get a little interesting for me in in the essay because um, I we I I think that as as um, Mormons we have uh, an an obligation to our community and to ourselves to trust our inner moral compass about about this and what we're reading. And if it feels a little off, then we need space to process that and to to be like, well, okay, that's all right. This doesn't mean that I'm going to hell <laughs> for having for having further questions. That this doesn't this essay d- doesn't just wrap it all up for me. That I, I, you know, th- there's I, I'm still wanting to know more. And and that's why you know going back to what Fair and I were saying earlier about those those footnotes, they are incredible. But anyway, yeah, that that word ordain that's <laughs> that's definitely a interesting word in that paragraph. So. Those are my thoughts on that paragraph. I want to jump in on that, too. Um, moving from the word ordained to the word ordinances, in that last sentence, it said, you know, men alone held the priesthood office and served the missions and performed ordinances. And and that's, you know, it's another one of these things where we have words that might mean something in 1840 that doesn't don't mean the same thing today. Um, but these ordinances is, are particularly interesting because the women who were performing blessings and healings after the founding of the Relief Society would refer to those things as ordinances. Um, they were also, women were also doing the death rituals. So they would not just prepare the body, but, but do the rites over that body for death. And they called that an ordinance. Um, mm-hmm. Emmeline Wells, it wasn't until the 19, excuse me, the 1880s, 1881. Emmeline Wells, who was about to be Relief Society president, she was the woman's exponent editor. She wrote a letter to, um, the President Wilfred Woodruff and asked a few questions about 
um, are we are we really justified in this ordinance of washing and anointing? And he comes back to her and says, I desire to say that the ordinance of washing and anointing is one that's only in the temple. And and you are not or doing an ordinance when you bless and heal. But that's mm. 40, you know, 40 years of women calling what they're doing ordinances. And so, you know, it's it might just be semantics with this paragraph. Uh, but if we're talking about Joseph Smith's time, then we did have women who believed themselves and saw themselves as performing ordinances. Absolutely. It also seems like in this paragraph and then further on as we get into the essay, there's times where there's a tension there where the church in one spot will say, hey, you know, we're kind of justified in men only having priesthood offices because this comes, you know, this has been through Christianity since the very beginning. And then in other times of the essay, it's like Christianity, you know, set it up this way, but we're the restoration. And so we're correcting that. It's almost like they want to play it both ways that, that the fact that it's been done throughout all of Christianity's history gives them legitimacy. And on the other hand, whenever we as a restoration want to part ways with Christianity, we can also play the other side of that coin, too. We can talk more about this when we get really into the ordination piece of this essay, but I did want to point out that, that they do play both sides of the coin, too, when it comes to what the word ordain means, because they say that for women, ordain ordination means to be set apart. But obviously, they ordained men then, and that word definition hasn't changed. So they ordained men, and that's they're still being ordained. But when they say they ordained women... It means simply set apart. So I feel like there's sort of two sides there. And clearly to me, the word ordain neither means set apart nor ordained to office. It means something else. And I think that the question is, what does it mean? And I don't think we know. I don't think the church knows. I don't think we know. And so I think we need to say out loud that we don't know what Joseph Smith meant when he ordained those women. But we need to find that out. Like that's what we're seeking for. That's what we're trying to understand. I completely agree with you. I don't think there's, I don't know of a, of a historian, a historian who's really being truthful that will say that we know what ordain meant at this time. We really, really don't. And we don't have any instances of women saying they were ordained to an office. Um, but to say that, well, shoot, I'm moving forward in the essay again, but to say that it's the same thing as being set apart is is a bit disingenuous uh, because they aren't meaning the same thing in the contexts of women's journals at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in those journals, women say I was ordained and set apart. Yes. So if it meant the same thing, they wouldn't, yeah, they wouldn't say. Yes. Use both words. And that word ordain. And then the, the church essay actually footnotes it and gives an example by saying that William Phelps was ordained to assist in the church printing operations and Newell K. Whitney was ordained to act as an agent for the church in business matters. Um, so, so it is being, you know, it's just messy. It's just messy and it's not clear cut what it means. But when we have these journal entries of women talking about being ordained, there does seem to be not a hundred percent of the time, but often a, a connection to those women who have already been endowed they're being ordained to things. Um, we also have a connection to callings of great importance that require an extra measure of authority, such as being a midwife or such as being a healer or such as being a president in the Relief Society. Right. Let me uh, – I'm going to read these next few paragraphs. Please just stop me anywhere along the way that, that you feel like something needs to be talked about. Uh, so the next few paragraphs, they, they go like this. It says, unlike those in many other churches – Latter-day Saints extended priesthood ordination broadly to laymen, as directed by Revelation. 
Over time, an extensive structure of priesthood offices and quorums was established. From the beginning, this structure was governed by revelation under the direction of priesthood leaders holding keys. The keys of the Melchizedek priesthood, given through divine messengers to Joseph Smith and later passed to others, bestowed the right of presidency, the right to administer in spiritual things, and the right to officiate in all the offices of the church. Latter-day Saints' understanding of this of the nature of priesthood and the keys grew as a result of revelations received by Joseph Smith. In 1832, Revelation taught that the greater or Melchizedek priesthood held the key of knowledge of the knowledge of God, and that in the ordinances of the priesthood, the power of godliness is manifest. Joseph Smith was charged, like Moses, to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. In 1836, angelic messengers committed priesthood keys to Joseph Smith that would enable church members to receive temple ordinances. In 1841, Revelation, the Lord commanded the saints to build a temple in Nauvoo, Illinois, where he would reveal to his people all things pertaining to this house and the priesthood thereof. The culminating ordinances of the priesthood were to be found in the temple and would help prepare men and women to enter into God's presence. Latter-day Saint women in the church's earliest years, like women elsewhere, participated actively in their new religious community. They ratified decisions by voting in conferences. They furnished the temple with their handiwork. They worshipped alongside men in meetings and choirs. They shared the gospel with relatives and neighbors. They hosted meetings in their homes, and they exercised spiritual gifts in private and in public. Early revelation authorized women to expound scriptures and to exhort the church. Even so, like most other Christians in their day, Latter-day Saints in the early years of the church reserved public preaching and leadership for men. I just want to just mention what we said earlier from Jana and Nyla, that the language of action continues, which I really like. And then I'll make just one comment on keys, and keys comes up later in the essay. Right. Um, but... This is just my personal opinion, and I've held this for, I don't know, a couple of years probably, but I think it's interesting. We talk about keys a lot when it comes to offices and that there are keys that allow the church to perform ordinances. But they also talk in this essay about keys of knowledge, and I'll add that we believe in the key of revelation. It's my personal feeling that when Joseph turned the key to the Relief Society, he gave them the key of revelation. And that he intended, this is my personal opinion, he intended the Relief Society sisters to use the key of revelation to then understand what authority and power belonged to them as women. And the rest of that quote is, I now turn the key to you. And then he says, so that knowledge and power will flow down from heaven from this time forth. So I'll just say that's my personal opinion that I think Joseph intended women to use their key, that key, to pull down the knowledge in heaven that was intended for women. So this next section, I think, is where the I, – I, as I read this when it first came out, I printed it off and grabbed a red pen and sat down and read through the whole thing. It is this next section where I ran out about half <laughs> yeah, of the Yeah, this is where it's really thick. And so <laughs> – so this is to, right. This is where it gets good. Uh, this one's titled Joseph Smith in the Nauvoo Relief Society. First paragraph starts off. Revelatory developments in Nauvoo afforded women new opportunities to participate in the church and expanded Latter-day Saints understanding of the eternal relationship between men and women. The organization of the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo on March 17th, 1842 
marked a significant step in these developments. Wanting to provide charitable support to men working to build the temple, a group of Mormon women planned to form a benevolent society, mirroring a popular, popular practice of the time. When they presented their plan to Joseph Smith, he felt inspired to move beyond such precedents. As Sarah Granger Kimball, a founding member of the Relief Society, later recalled, the prophet told them he had something better for them and said he would organize the women in the order of the priesthood after the pattern of the church. Yeah, there we go. I mean, there it is, the order of the priesthood. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal that they're they're talking about that, and that's um, that's where I hope as conversations go forward. For Mormon women, and we we can talk about this later, of course, in the podcast. You know what what does this mean for Mormon women today? But I mean, look at this language that's coming out of this essay. It's it's uh, it's great that we're being open about this. I'll just say that. I absolutely agree. Even even their ability or their willingness, the essay's willingness to deal with those words like ordain is amazing. Uh, I haven't seen anything come from the church about that to do so in such a public place. Um, I absolutely agree with that. I want to point out, too, that um, when Joseph founded, or he didn't actually found the Relief Society, but when he right. you know, brought, helped bring it into being and, and made it a church, um, a, a, gosh, I'm mumbling. You can cut all my mumbling out. So when Joseph was participating in the very first Nauvoo Female Relief Society, uh, he said that, that Emma after she had been elected by the women there, not not actually appointed. So, according to the minutes, Joseph declares that, quote, like the first presidency of the church, the Relief Society presidency was to continue in office during good behavior or so long as they shall continue to fill the office with dignity. And so even when he's setting up the Relief Society in the order of the church, he's doing so in a way that doesn't say a Relief Society president gets released. Instead, she stays in office until she passes away or until she suddenly behaves badly. Uh, but that is something that changes with Emmeline Wells. And now we have General Relief, Relief Society pre- um, presidents who get released, but not the first four. The first four Relief Society presidents died in office. Uh, and that is pretty significant historically. Yeah. The next paragraph here, and this gets into what Suzette was kind of talking about in terms of keys and and as you guys are pointing out, these are just huge steps for the church to just acknowledge publicly that that these things that these things want regardless of how we kind of get in the trenches and, and discuss what these words mean, just the fact of acknowledging that these words are within our history in these types of experiences, I think is a huge step forward. The paragraph says the women named their new organization, Relief Society. It was unlike other women's societies of the day because it was established by a prophet who acted with priesthood authority to give women authority, sacred responsibilities, and official positions within the structure of the church, not apart from it. The women were organized, as Apostle John Taylor remarked at the founding meeting, according to the law of heaven. Joseph Smith charged the women to relieve the poor and to save souls. Can I just stop you right there? I just want to add one quick thing, sort of tongue-in-cheek. I think it's interesting. The two charges to women were to relieve the poor and save souls, which makes me believe that women should currently be in charge of all welfare and all temples in the church. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. (laughs) Amen. Okay, so Joseph Smith charged women to relieve the poor and to save souls. And and I think you're hitting on something there. If that's the charge he gave them, he's saying, look, this is your added responsibility beyond what the men are given to do. 
I think you're onto something. I think there's places where we as a, as a church could pass off some of those responsibilities and just let welfare let and temples. The, church the men can them. run everything else. We're just going to run yeah. welfare and temples. <laughs> women, women did run the healing in the temples all the way through 1920. So, but we can, we can hit on that when we get to healings and blessings, but they did, they did run a significant part of temple work. Love it. Love it. He stated that his wife, Emma Hale Smith's appointment as president of the Relief Society fulfilled a revelation given to her 12 years earlier in which she was called an elect lady. He also declared to the society, I now turn the key to you in the name of God and this society shall rejoice and knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time. Sarah Kingsley Cleveland, a counselor to Emma Smith, expressed the women's sense of divine authorization when she said, quote, we designed to act in the name of the Lord, unquote. Emma Smith called upon each member of the society to be ambitious to do good, declaring that together they would do something extraordinary. She anticipated extraordinary occasions and pressing calls. It goes on. It says two aspects of Joseph Smith's teachings to the Women of Relief Society may be unfamiliar to members of the church today. First is his use of the language associated with priesthood. In organizing the Relief Society, Joseph spoke of ordaining women and said that Relief Society officers would preside over the society. He also declared, I now turn the key to you in the name of God. These statements indicate that Joseph Smith delegated priesthood authority to women in the Relief Society. Joseph's language can be more fully understood in historical context. During the 19th century, Latter-day Saints used the term keys to refer at various times to authority, knowledge, or temple ordinances. Likewise, Mormons sometimes use the term ordain in a broad sense, often interchangeably with set-apart and not always referring to the priesthood office. On these points, Joseph's actions illuminate the meaning of his words. Neither Joseph Smith, nor any person acting on his behalf, nor any of his successors, conferred the Aaronic or Melchizedek priesthood on women, or ordained women to priesthood office. So this seems to be a paragraph where they're starting to kind of distance themselves from the way we traditionally use these words. Uh, your guys' thoughts on uh, on that? <laughs> Uh, I will just say, and then I'll let everyone else take it over, um, that when someone is ordained to something, that doesn't necessarily mean that he or she is being ordained to the priesthood. So so it's not an equivalency. Ordaining doesn't necessarily mean ordaining to priesthood. You can be ordained or instead of part, right? Or um, but but there is a difference in the language between being ordained to a particular priesthood office that's not necessarily in that word when it's used in different contexts. And I'm, I'm just going to be, be real here uh, for, for my own, <laughs> um, my own personal response. I, I felt like it started out really well. And then when the, um, the interpretation part started to kick in, I started to feel a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I know I'm not the only one that there were others, uh, you know, many other women who, who started to feel like, Okay, well, you know, here is this interpretation is is made to um, to have a certain effect on women to say, okay, that's the end of this conversation in terms of of uh, um, offices and and uh, you know how I mean they they were very explicit that what 
you're hearing that sounds a lot like what we do today is not the same in any way, shape or form. And, and that, that just, that didn't feel right to me. Um, I feel like, um, and I, I said this earlier, we, we need to let people, um, you know, re- research, uh, what was said and then come to their own conclusions. And I don't feel like they left much room for that in, in this paragraph. So that, that's how I felt. And I absolutely understand that. And I know a lot of other women who absolutely agree with that. And perhaps it's just my background in, in reading and lit that I can find space for myself in just about anything. Uh, and, and that's the space I create hangs on my interpretation of words. And so that last sentence that Bill read that is so like drawing a line in the sand actually becomes pretty wiggly for me when I look at a word like conferred, right? Joseph Smith did not confer the priesthood on a woman. That's different than a woman receiving the priesthood in an endowment that's not conferred by Joseph Smith or a prophet. It's different than the really a woman receiving the, the priesthood when she's sealed uh, and, and sealed to the priesthood with her spouse. Um, that's, again, not conferred on her by a church leader. And it's certainly different than the second anointing or that anointed quorum uh, where where they use language that refers to Melchizedek priesthood for everyone in that quorum. And that includes women. But again, mm-hmm. that's not conferred on them by Joseph Smith. That's, that's endowed on them through that ritual. So I, you know, I make space for my feelings on these things by looking at an individual word and, and kind of saying, well, what does that really mean? And can I make this work for me? Oh, Farah, I love that. And you know, that is what I, I hope and I pray for, um, Mormon women to do. Oh, and men, and men too. Um, Bill, we, <laughs> uh, hopefully, uh, uh, everyone does. Um, that they make, that they make that space for themselves because, I mean, it was, it seems like this essay is, is, is not wanting to, to do that. Um, but people, but people claiming that, that right to, to, uh, find that, find that space and i as a former english major <laughs> turned turned psychologist i i can definitely resonate with that and and i hope i hope my daughters do that i hope that they'll um they'll make that space for themselves too so and we'll we'll talk about more about that too but yeah it seems too like there's this this kind of faulty argument that we use we, we sometimes do it with jesus we'll say well jesus never did that so hence, we can't do that. And it seems like they're making the argument here that because Joseph Smith never gave priesthood to uh, anybody but a, the male species, that that limits us. But in reality, when we look at all the things the church does, the church does a lot of things that neither Jesus nor Joseph Smith did. And and in some ways, I think that we, we overextend that argument beyond its validity when we use it as the sole basis for why we can't go and do something. Well, I agree. I mean neither Jesus nor Joseph Smith ordained 12-year-old boys, but we do it now. So, among other things. And, and, Uchtdorf is not the only, um, prophet that has said the restoration is ongoing, but he certainly has made a point of it lately. And I think that we need to remember that the restoration is ongoing. Joseph Smith is the, the prophet of the restoration, and he started this ball rolling, and we have to continue. We have to continue to expand and seek and look for what's intended. Oh, yeah. That was a great talk. I, I remember hearing – I had Rosie on my lap, my, my um, two-year-old, as I heard that one. And his, 
his exact phrasing was, are we sleeping through the, through the restoration? I, yes. I loved that. Yeah. So it continues on and it kind of plays more of this, how we, how we define words and, and where we draw lines on these and, and kind of talking about these boundaries. It says, in later years, words like ordination and keys were more, pro- more precisely defined, as when President John Taylor, who acted by assignment from Joseph Smith to ordain and set apart Emma Smith and her counselors, explained in 1880 that, quote, the ordination then given did not mean the conferring of priesthood upon those sisters. Women did receive authority to preside in the women's organization and to appoint officers as needed to conduct the organization in the pattern of the priesthood, including being led by a president with counselors. By the time of President Taylor's statement, women-led organizations were also in place for young women and children. These organizations also had presidencies who acted with delegated priesthood authority. I think it's also important to to know, and it's also important to know that that Relief Society was not an auxiliary at this point. It wasn't an auxiliary until 1913. And so when you're talking about the Relief Society and women being over young women and children, they were literally over young women and children. The presidencies for the youth programs and the presidencies for the primary were underneath the Relief Society presidency. And though that Relief Society presidency uh, had the authority to act, but they also had the power to act. They were uh, a corollary to the priesthood administration of the church. At this point, they were not an auxiliary of it. And that's the kind of thing that, that I would love to have seen in this essay. Again, uh, when you add in all those arms and legs, it becomes untenable for the general LDS audience who's coming to it for the first time. But just little things like that, that kind of an understanding of what the Relief Society looked like and that it did not look the way it looks today, I feel is important and is an absent sort of presence in this essay. I should also say, too, that I've often hear within Mormonism, when I'm when I'm at a leadership meeting, when I'm at a, a ward council or other places in the church where principles are being taught, there's this teaching that gets put across that keys allow people in the church to preside. That that keys, in essence, that's what they do. They give one the right to preside over something. And yet here, the brethren have used the word preside in terms of what the women of the church are able to do over the Relief Society organization and other organizations. And yet, while we are saying, hey, this key was turned to you, there really is no spot in these essays where it says, yes, the sisters can hold priesthood keys. But isn't it just out of the term preside? Almost isn't that kind of at least on the periphery of how we think about um, what that means? So in Mike Quinn's um, essay, Mormon Women Have Had the Priesthood, that, the essay that's in Women in Authority, he talks about keys and he gives the um, early, early definition of it from the very first in- entry of the Encyclopedia of Mormonism. And it says, quote, the keys of the priesthood refer to the right to exercise power in the name of Jesus Christ. But then the article goes on and, and adds the keys also or or they are meant to preside over a priesthood function, quorum, or organizational division of the church. And so way back, and this is a, a definition that would have been in play in that Nauvoo space, uh, you kind of have this tension between both of those things. The key, is that key the authority and the power to act in the name of Christ? Or is it the authority to preside 
over a quorum or a priesthood function or an organizational division. So even at that point, you know, we want it to be this black and white definition of what this means. We use keys. We use that term all the time. But even back in the 1840s, 1850s, it was muddy. And it could have meant one of two different things. It probably could have meant more than that. And so to try to figure out exactly what that meant for Emma and the Relief Society is it's really, really difficult. Right. And, and I just think that in an article, in an essay where the church is really trying to make members clear on how words are defined, we're either going to have to get away from saying that keys give one the right to preside or acknowledge that on some level, in some certain way, that sisters have keys if we're going to use that term. I think the best thing we can do is just say, I don't know. I think the church can say, I don't know, and we can say that as we try and figure it out. But I do want to go back to what Farah was saying because I thought the same thing when you were reading this paragraph about the Relief Society and how it was structured and led, that it was an independent organization that called and set apart its own leaders. Yes. And that the Relief Society has changed into an auxiliary, and I would love nothing more than the consideration that the Relief Society could be its own quorum. And that it could be not an auxiliary, but its own quorum in the structure of priesthood. And I, I think that would go a long way in uh, in giving women a true partnership in this whole church governance. Yeah. I mean, the way, it, the way it used to be before Brigham Young disbanded the Relief Society for 40 years because, you know, it was, a, it was an anti-polygamy uh, <laughs> organization. He, he wasn't a fan of that. Um, That's right. But, yeah, if we could if we could bring it back to how it originally was. Not an auxiliary. Imagine the possibilities. Now, that said, it also wasn't something that any woman just automatically belonged to if she was a member of the church. It was exclusive. You had to be invited. You had to be worthy. You had to kind of pay your dues and and have some sort of um, authority of your own to be part of the Relief Society. And so it was an exclusive group, and there was absolutely a hierarchy, even though we don't want to think about it that way because that seems to make it Less pure, I suppose, but there absolutely was. There's some things that we need to move forward on and yeah. some things that we need to restore. So again, this is all part of the messiness and parceling it out. Yes. Yeah, and the, and the beauty of continuing right. revelation for that. Absolutely. The beauty of continuing revelation, indeed. <laughs> so the next paragraph then goes on. It says the second aspect of Joseph Smith's teachings to the Relief Society that may be unfamiliar today is his endorsement of women's participation in giving blessings of healing. Respecting the female laying on of hands, the Nauvoo Relief Society minutes record, Joseph said that, quote, it is no sin for anybody to do it that has faith, unquote. And admonished, quote, if the sisters should have faith to heal the sick, let all hold their tongues and let everything roll on, unquote. Some women had performed such blessings since the early days of the church. At that time, Latter-day Saints understood the gift of healing primarily in terms of the New Testament teaching that it was one of the gifts of the Spirit available to believers through faith. Joseph Smith taught that the gift of healing was a sign that would follow all that believe, whether male or female, unquote. Women participating in healing was a part of every single meeting of the Relief Society, uh, of that early Relief Society. Even in the very first meeting where it was formed, uh, the counselors were set apart and ordained. Uh, John Taylor ordained Sarah Cleland and Elizabeth Ann Whitney as Emma's counselors. And Elizabeth Ann Whitney in her reminiscence said, I was ordained and set apart under the hand of Joseph Smith, the prophet, to administer to the sick and comfort the sorrowful. 
She goes on and says, several other sisters were also ordained and set apart to administer in these ordinances. At the fourth meeting of the Relief Society, Emma Smith, Sarah Cleveland, and Elizabeth Whitney administered a healing blessing or ritual. We're not exactly sure what that looked like um, to a sister Durfee. And she came back, Sister Durfee came back in the fifth meeting of Relief Society and bore her testimony about how powerful that healing had been. Have this recorded in the minutes from Eliza. Mrs. Durfee bore testimony to the great blessing she received when administered to after the close of the last meeting. She said she'd never realized more benefit through any administration and that she was healed and thought the sisters had more faith than the brethren. So every single one of these um, Relief Society meetings that we have the minutes for, has a component in it that was that healing and blessing. And that was part of what these women felt called to do. Uh, we also had a sense from what Joseph said and, and what uh, um, some of the Relief Society leaders said later on, that if you were part of that Relief Society, you had a responsibility to exercise your, your healing and blessing gifts. And that it was part of your calling as a member of the Relief Society. Yeah, I got nothing more to add to that. <laughs> yeah. No, mic drop. Uh, let me, so, because you said that so wonderfully, let, let me just add on, um, a personal, uh, story to this that, um, I, I was also looking into the Relief Society minutes for, for later, uh, in our history in the, you know, turn of the century, um, early, early 1900s. And I came across, uh, in the Relief Society minutes a blessing, a, a blessing in preparation for childbirth. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And, um, I, I was pregnant at the time with, with my second and, uh, oh, I don't want to get too emotional here, but I, I think I will anyway, <laughs> uh, to, to read these, about these women doing this, um, this ordinance, uh, and, and using language that I had only heard men use out, um, outside of the temple, you know, in, in, uh, you know, healing blessing that they, they would say things like, we unitedly lay our hands upon your head and, and we anoint with oil and we, we seal this blessing in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is, this was in the Relief Society minute notes. Like this wasn't in the, in the temple. Um, I, I just, it, it really, it, it moved me in ways that I, um, you know, I, it, I longed to have that back. Um, I, I couldn't imagine what that would feel like to, to have, um, you know, women in my in my relief society lay their hands on my head and and uh, because I, you know as a psychologist I I work um, with with a lot of uh, women who are um, experiencing uh, prepartum anxiety and even depression and postpartum anxiety and depression too and and to have a uh, uh, women there to help them um, man that that really that really gets my my wheels turning <laughs> when I think about about um, what that could look like uh, in the future. In, in you mentioning that, I mean, there's this quote here from Joseph that uh, if the sisters should have faith to heal the sick, let all hold their tongues and let everything mm-hmm. roll on. That idea, while they're going to, as we're going to get into here in the next couple of paragraphs, the the brethren in this essay are going to distance themselves from that practice. It also seems by including this quote, they've also opened the door for it to return. Does that make sense? I well, if it if it that was their intention, they have a funny way of doing it by <laughs> quoting the handbook and saying, you know, this is the current <laughs> policy; only Melchizedek priesthood holders can do this. But I. 
and I'll let, I mean, of course, Farron and, and Suzette, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I, I would love to hear what you have to say about this. My, my impression is that, um, yes, Bill, <laughs> that by, by including that quote, whether intentionally or not, it's, it doesn't matter to me because women, I think, like, like I felt when they, when they hear that, they're going to, you know, something, something might light up in them and they'll, they'll get excited just like I did and, and perhaps, uh, you know, they'll, they'll go and do, um, as, as Nephi would say. Uh, I, I just, you know, in fact, just today, our, um, one of our, our mutual friends, um, Teresa Dixon, uh, wrote publicly on a Feminist Mormon Housewives blog about how, you know, she's going to be open and, and vulnerable and honest about, uh, the, how, how she's been performing blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and that is, is I think the the uh, the hope that I have for Mormon women after they read this essay that that they'll trust their inner voice and they'll be bold and they'll be brave and they will they'll uh, um, they'll do as as their conscience dictates like Teresa did today by by just laying it out there publicly I mean not not that everybody has to do that of course but I mean, but look, look what's happened. Every, it's just been two or three days since that essay came out, and already we've got, we've got someone who's being so brave. So anyway, I'm curious what, what y'all think, though, about, about that. I do what think that um, they're called confinement rituals. So the, the blessings that would be administered to a, a pregnant woman or a woman struggling with fertility or to a postpartum woman and that baby and that child, those are all called confinement rituals. Mm-hmm. And by the 1870s, that, that was a firmly established practice that LDS women would would do these rituals. Um, and there, yeah, there are, we do have the language to them. And it's only by two different wards of women in the 1912s, right in that space, 1911, 1912, recording them, those words to those rituals. They weren't supposed to, they were so sacred that they were not supposed to be recorded. But in that moment of time, there was a lot of pushback happening about women giving healings and blessings. And so we have two different wards that write down the those ritual words in their minutes to preserve them and it's because of that those two wards that we have this at all to be honest um but confinement rituals are amazing and really worth discussing and i i did feel their absence in the essay when it just talked about blessing and healing it did so with such a gloss that the essay didn't give a good sense of what that looked like or what that was and and how broad that practice was from yeah from healing children with smallpox to to um, rebaptizing a baby <laughs> to, uh, to to blessing a handkerchief and mailing it to your husband to blessing your sisters when they were about to have children and so here you go Bill you need to have a whole podcast about blessing and Blessings. healing because it is so thick and rich of a topic awesome we'll have to do that we'll have to revisit it yeah and I'll just add to what Christy said I, I do think that. In the modern day, it's important to consider what blessing and healing might mean for the women of the Relief Society today and that women should um, think about it, speak about it and, and discuss what those gifts might be. So awesome. don't be afraid as as easy as that is to say and hard to do to uh, I mean, it, it's understandable to fear. I, I get it. <laughs> Believe me, I've been there, but but it's. To be to be brave, to be bold, to be authentic. I mean, that's uh, of course, you know, this is this is my psychologist's um, bias about this, but I think that's where the healing healing comes when we when we go forward 
Anyway. The the power I see in that quote is that in earlier in this own in this essay itself they've deferred to Joseph Smith and said what what he did or didn't do and this sentence seems to imply that Joseph Smith's preference would be that we let the sisters perform blessings and not not intervene in stopping that and so I think in this essay earlier on they've already made room to say hey look let's let's all defer back to what Joseph said about this and what he did with this and and I saw this sentence as kind of an opening at some future point to look back and say yeah you know let's get back to what Joseph was doing So here's the quote that I wish would have been included in the essay um, about what Joseph was doing when he left that fifth um, meeting of the Relief Society, he recorded in his private journal about what he'd taught the sisters, and we're lucky to have this now. His journal was called The Book of the Law of the Lord, and his entry from the day included this, quote, gave a lecture on the priesthood, showing how the sisters would come in possession of the privileges and blessings and gifts of the priesthood, and that the signs should follow them, such as healing the sick and casting out devils, etc., that they might attain unto these blessings by a virtuous life, and conversion and diligence in keeping all the commandments. Beautiful. <laughs> I love, I love it. I love this. I love this. And, and, you know, I think that it even speaks to us today because regardless of what is, what is authorized or what is done in the church, this is a promise that if we are virtuous and converted and are diligent, that these blessings will follow us and we can strive to be worthy of them and to practice them and to develop them. And I love it. Mm-hmm. And that quote, I love, I love that quote. That can be found on the Joseph Smith papers yes. in Joseph's original handwriting, correct? Yes. And since it's his, it's his own personal journal. Not a scribal error. You know? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. So Beautiful. everyone look it up. Excellent. And I, I think good too, as, as we're doing this episode, some of the quotes and things you guys are sharing and, and personal experience. I, I hope that this is touching people as much as it's touching me. I really appreciate, uh, each of you three and your perspectives. The, the next section here says during the 19th century, women frequently blessed the sick by the prayer of faith and many women received priesthood blessings, promising that they would have the gift of healing. I have seen many demonstrations of the power and blessing of God through the administration of the sisters, testified Elizabeth Ann Smith Whitney, who was, by her own account, blessed by Joseph Smith to exercise this gift. In reference to these healing blessings, Relief Society General President Eliza R. Snow explained in 1883, women can administer in the name of Jesus, but not by virtue of the priesthood. And then it wraps up this section, again, by trying to, I guess, place a little more distance. Women's participation in healing blessings gradually declined in the early 20th century, as church leaders taught that it was preferable to follow the New Testament directive to call for the elders. By 1926, church president Heber J. Grant affirmed that the first presidency, quote, do not encourage calling in the sisters to administer to the sick, as the scriptures tell us to call in the elders who hold the priesthood of God and have the power and authority to administer to the sick in the name of Jesus Christ. The current handbook of instructions directs that, quote, only Melchizedek priesthood holders may administer to the sick or afflicted, unquote. Uh, your guys' thoughts there on those last two paragraphs that that seem to go so far to acknowledge that these things were happening and, and then to kind of almost, with just a few words, just step away. Cut it off at the knees. Yep, you got it. <laughs> that quote by Eliza kills me because it's me it's entirely the opposite of what she actually what she argued through almost all of her life. Uh, 
when you have uh, John Taylor come into um, become the prophet of the church and Eliza suddenly is put as it's formalized. He formalizes the Relief Society and she had been an informal Relief Society president under Brigham Young. And she had gone and taught part of her job under Brigham Young was to go establish Relief Societies, teach them how that what that looked like. But she was also empowered. She was the prophetess of the church. She was called the the prophetess. prophetess She was the prophetess. Absolutely. And she was the presidentess. And part of her job in establishing Relief Societies was teaching the women how to perform healing and blessing rituals. Uh, That's part of what she did when she set up a Relief Society. And she... And, and my, the response I wrote to this essay, I included in a footnote, um, one of the things that Eliza had said about this in, in 1884. And any and all sisters, this is a quote, any and all sisters who honor their holy endowments not only have the right, but should feel it a duty whenever called upon to administer to our sisters in these ordinances, which God has graciously committed to his daughters as well as to his sons. And we testify that when administered and received in faith and humility, they are accompanied with almighty power. Uh, and she goes on to talk about this duty to apply um, these gifts and these ordinances and rituals for the relief of human suffering. Uh, we have so much that Eliza has said about this, about healings and blessings, that for this essay to take this one particular quote um Kind of, it, it's rough for me, um, particularly because when John Taylor came in and he and Eliza didn't have that relationship that she'd had with Joseph and with Brigham. And when he formalized her position as a, as, as a relief study president, in a lot of ways, he stripped her authority from her. She had more authority before she was put in that formalized position. And it's at that moment where we first begin to see the argument um, coming from the church leadership that healings are are gift of the spirit only. They are an act of faith and that they are not uh, an ordinance or an authority that comes via the power of God. And so that whole rest of the time until Eliza and John Taylor both pass away in the same year, there's a, there's a real fight between them uh, about what that is and what it looks like. And, and that's is the, the heralding of the, the downfall to this practice for women. I have to ask here, I don't know the context necessarily of the quote. It, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that she begins, she begins to kind of give up ground theologically so that she can maintain ground in terms of authority. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Yep. I, uh, I was lucky years and years ago to be, um, at a presentation that Jill Durr, the historian, was was giving. And she talked about how Eliza had been able, she would go to these churches, these wards, these relief societies, and two years earlier, she would have been able to administer um, with her authority through her endowment and her position in the church, and she would perform these healings and blessings. And then right after she was put in as the, the pr- president of the Relief Society, uh, she there was some sort of reigning in that happened because in the language, in the minutes of these relief societies, it talks about her saying, if I were to hold the priesthood, then I could do this. Then I could bless you. But seeing that I do not, seeing as I've been told that I do not, right? So there is really, there are really interesting power plays and, and things going on between Eliza and John Taylor. And and the quote that, sh- that the essay uses comes from that moment uh, and not earlier. And that changes 
that changes what the content of what she's saying is. The next section is on priesthood in the temple. And and me personally, as I went through it, there wasn't really anything that stood out as, as super significant that I personally had my attention drawn to it. But I did want to check with the three of you as we kind of maybe breeze through this section. Was there anything that stood out in the priesthood in the temple section that, that our listeners, perhaps we should, we should draw their attention to it and, and make note of it? I'll just say that I do think that the temple um, is a powerful place for women. This is Suzette speaking. Many women have all kinds of feelings about the temple, but I do think it's a place where we're endowed with power. Uh, we wear the robes of the holy priesthood. Uh, there's lots of symbols of the feminine divine. And so I'll just briefly say that I, I do think there's a lot of good, powerful things in the temple for women so sometimes they're a little harder to see, but I, I think it's a good place for women. I would add that in that Nabu space, when women and men first had that full endowment, uh, that was really something for women to be able to participate in, in that space. Um, beforehand, it had just been for men. And Kirtland, it was just for men who were going on missions. And so there really was a sense that there was a priesthood power that came through that endowment. And, um, you know, another thing that, that is missing in this, disc- this essay is that discussion of the, the anointed quorum and the second anointing. Uh, that's where you have women participating on equal terms and in terms of authority and power with those men who are part of the quorum. It's not called the quorum until Emma Smith is inducted as one, as a member and Joseph is elected president of it. Um, that goes, that is the thing that Eliza and, and Emmeline Wells and, and quite a few of the women for the next 50 to 80 years cling to was that there is an endowment of power that happened to women. And that gives them, they believe, an authority and the right to not only administer healing and blessing rituals, but to have authority in, in their lives and in the church. Um, this is also where husbands and wives are sealed together. And that's huge. Uh, it's understood at a time that that husbands and wives are sealed to the priesthood and therefore they share the priesthood. And so for, for 50 years, you have women sealing blessings, uh, in the name of the priesthood that they share with their spouse. Uh, you have Brigham Young and even John Taylor talking about how women and men share the priesthood together when they are sealed. Um, this is where you have collaborative healing. You have collaborative revelation, uh, that anointed quorum altogether, men and women would receive revelation as a group and that kind of made sure that not one person was getting the wrong thing but together they would participate in that so it really that temple the temple certainly in Nauvoo was a space of collaborative uh collaborative reveling in the priesthood and in the house of the lord and we don't see that as much anymore uh but certainly that going, a woman being able to go through the temple and receive that endowment is something that gives her another, an extra layer of power and authority. Excellent. Let's, uh, let's work our way kind of winding down now. Let's work our way through this last section, which is women in priesthood today. And, and let me do this. Let me just read these four paragraphs and then, um, and then turn the time kind of over to you guys and let you, kind of bring out the aspects in this last section that you guys want to talk about. So it's titled Women in Priesthood Today. It says, in some respects, the relationship between Latter-day Saint women and priesthood has remained remarkably constant since Joseph Smith's day, as in 
the earliest days of the church, men are ordained to the priesthood offices, while both women and men are invited to experience the power and blessings of the priesthood in their lives. Men and women continue to officiate in sacred ordinances in temples, much as they did in Joseph Smith's day. Joseph taught that men and women can obtain the highest degree of celestial glory only by entering together into an order of the priesthood through the temple sealing ordinance. That understanding remains with Latter-day Saints today. The priesthood authority exercised by Latter-day Saint women in the temple and elsewhere remains largely unrecognized by people outside the church and is sometimes misunderstood or overlooked by those within. Latter-day Saints and others often mistakenly equate priesthood with religious office and the men who hold it, which obscures the broader Latter-day Saint concept of priesthood. Since Joseph Smith's day, church prophets exercising the keys of the priesthood have adapted structures and programs in the world in which educational, political, and economic opportunities have expanded for many women. Today, Latter-day Saint women lead three organizations within the church, the Relief Society, the Young Women, and the Primary. They preach and pray in congregations, feel numerous positions of leadership and service, participate in priesthood councils at the local and general levels, and serve formal proselytizing missions across the globe. In these and other ways, women exercise priesthood authority even though they are not ordained to priesthood office. Such service and leadership would require ordination in many other religious traditions. The last paragraph says priesthood blesses the lives of God's children in innumerable ways. Priesthood defines, empowers, ennobles, and creates order. In ecclesiastical callings, temple ordinances, family relationships, and quiet individual ministry. Latter-day Saint women and men go forward with priesthood power and authority, this interdependence of men and women in accomplishing God's work through his power is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. Uh, ladies, your, your thoughts on this last section uh, and where it takes you. I love the last paragraph. I love it. I, I love that it says Latter-day Saint women and men go forward with priesthood power and authority. And, you know, this is something that was understood early in the church, and it's something that we're starting to come back around to as it, since Oaks talk. But gosh, you know, I was never taught this as a young woman. I wasn't taught this in the 1980s, that I had any sense of, of, of having a priesthood at all. And, and, you know, to be entirely honest, I did not participate with ordained women, and I'm not agitating for women's ordination at all. However, I, I feel like it's finally time to see what priesthood I do have. And this is the first real time where, where we're given permission to recognize in ourselves as women a priesthood power and a priesthood authority. And I think that's magnificent. And I think that that is empowering. And I am really excited about, about where that leads us as a, as a women and as a church and as families and as marriages. I'm really excited about what that can lead to for us. I'll say that. I really like the last sentence that says the interdependence of men and women. However, I wish they would flesh that out a little bit because I think that's sort it, 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 it sounds really great. Like we're interdependent, like we are meshed together, but what does that really mean? I would love to just hear more about that and think more about that. I will quote from um, April Young Bennett's response mm-hmm. when she points out what they do not say. They do not say anything about the parallels between priesthood and motherhood. 
and they do not give sort of any platitudes to sort of this separate but equal. And I think that's really powerful what they're not saying here. And, and I like Farah am grateful that they do say some of these powerful things. And I think we can do a lot of exploring. The yes. one part that hangs me up just a little bit, and this is in the very end of the first paragraph where it says, Joseph taught that men and women can obtain the highest degree of celestial glory by entering together into an order of a priesthood through the temple ceiling. Um, to me, that it's hard to understand by itself, but I'm a single member of the church. And so it's hard for me to think that my my ability to obtain celestial glory is like is sort of stunted that I can't as a woman by myself sort of get there. Now it's saying that men can't get there either, but single men do have priesthood authority. They do have um, priesthood ordination anyway. So that I need to think about that a little bit more as a single woman um, and what that really means for me, because I think we can work together as men and women. We can be interdependent. We can move the, kingdom of God forward, whether we're married to each other or not. Like we don't have to be married to each other to work interdependently. We can just be brothers and sisters in the gospel and work in that way. So uh, this whole single thing would take a whole nother podcast, but that's one little thing that I just sort of noticed, but I'm grateful they didn't make any parallels between motherhood and priesthood and that it just talks about priesthood. And I think that like Farrah says, it's really powerful. So, Suzette, just to follow up with what you're saying about singleness, particularly with a woman, um, the patriarch John Smith back in Nauvoo uh, taught that or made it clear that women did not need a man to receive the priesthood. And we have a lot of blessings that he gives to women in Nauvoo that explain to them that they have a right to the priesthood because they come it comes through the inheritance of their fathers and the inheritance of their mothers. And it's the same priesthood that Abraham gave his daughters. And we have women who were single, who were um, empowered to give blessings. And we have women who were married to non-members who were told to exercise their priesthood power in their homes. Uh, and so there is this space, this very small space where there's a historical precedent for giving that higher priesthood to women independent of whether or not they were married. Good news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send I've, it to you, Suzette. I'll send it all that stuff. Yeah, I've I've read those quotes too by by John Smith, who's uncle to Joseph and Hiram, right? Right. He was their uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating blessings that he gives women. I will say as as a you know, from from my clinical experience that the the part that Suzette mentioned about the interdependence um, is something that that not just single women, um, but women who are um, struggling with infertility, uh, women who are uh, you know, or divorced. Um, there, there's just there's such a broad spectrum of of women's experiences, and um, I have. So I, I'll just mention a, a couple stories here and protect anonymity for, you know, for my clients here, because I, I work, uh, you know, primarily with Mormon women and um, people who are um, going through faith crises, um, which is actually quite normal. Um, but we, we don't, we don't talk about it very much, but um, this, this isn't the first time people have been told, well, the, the answers you seek are in the temple. So go, go to the temple and you'll feel better. Um, and you'll, you know, the, 
outsiders don't understand women's authority and some insiders just just like they said there i mean I, people um get get that response a lot when they bring up their their struggles and their questions and um because it, it's it's quite it's quite normal and quite common to to you know to ask these questions about women and authority and so so um and and some women like Suzette and I I I respect and honor that that you are you know you're finding peace and comfort there I I have too especially you know the, the first time that I went through I but I was just I was blown away by what women you know were performing there I, I felt so comforted and I mean, just the the actions were were amazing to me um at the same time some of the wording the wording that reflects what the essay is saying about interdependence can feel very uncomfortable for a lot of a lot of women and and I feel like there's not a lot of space for women to to talk about that in our culture particularly the you know the, that men preside and women hearken you know to the man and the man hearkens to God that there's not that direct relationship between a woman and God as there is between the man and God. She, you know, there's there's a a go between, and that's the man. So if if that that interdependence that they're talking about in the essay, that is what they're referring to. That for for many women, that doesn't help necessarily. And so I will just I will just say here um, because you know it's just the psychologist. It's it's as what we do. That I'm really hoping that women will comfort each other. Uh, when, when these issues come up, because we know that, that these essays are going to be integrated into the curriculum in Sunday School Relief Society. Uh, and so to, to create a safe space for other women to, uh, to say, you know, I, maybe this, this essay, uh, made, made me feel a little uncomfortable, or I wish that there were more, or, you know, because as, as each woman is open and honest about, about their, their feelings and relief society that gives you know 80 or 90 women who are in that room too this space to to say me too and to know they're not alone and so that they don't just they don't just struggle that that's i think the main thing that i wanted to say about about those those concluding paragraphs ladies first off let me say i appreciate so much uh the three of you guys being on and what you've brought to this episode uh, I've interviewed sisters in the church before, but I've but to have this kind of a panel discussion with the three of you has just been enlightening to me, and and it's helped me gain a whole new perspective of of the experiences within our church history as well as personally with the sisters of the church. I, I want to just turn a moment over to the three of you, maybe briefly, just to share any closing thoughts you might have and uh, about this essay and and what it maybe means to have it out there now and to be able to discuss it and uh, let each of you just kind of finish off the episode that way. My closing thought would be that I think this is a great starting place. Uh, it's a great place for us to have some words on paper, on the table, and that the whole church, men and women, and hopefully especially women, can start talking about it, looking at it, and exploring it, and the discussion can continue from here. Yeah, me too, Suzette. And for me, my, my closing thought is I really want for my daughters, I have, I have two, a four-year-old and two-year-old and, and, um, twins on the way. Um, I, I want them to be able to read these, these historical accounts and, and to be able to, um, 
to interpret them for themselves. What what that means for for uh, their history, our history, Mormon women's history. My, my pioneer heritage goes all the way back. Um, so, like you, Suzette, that's that's what I hope that we'll have further discussion. And I, I echo that. I I really feel like one way or the other, this is a good this essay is a good starting point, and it opens up space for us to talk about things in a more public way. And it legitimizes these conversations. And I, I would hope that we hear these conversations in our in our worship spaces. Um, and like Christy, you know, I as I was thinking about this essay and, and what I hope, I'm thinking about my daughter, my 12 year old daughter, who's just barely in young women's. And I, I wrote down the few things that that I want for her. So I'll read that to you and then I'll be done. Um, I want for her to be able to see herself as an agent, one who acts with the power and authority of the priesthood in charity and service for others. I want her to be able to claim and know and use her voice. I want her to see that her spiritual development goes beyond being married in the temple. I want her to have a desire to identify, develop, and practice her spiritual gifts, whatever they may be. I want her to be able to see herself as able to bless those around her who are in need of blessing. And hearkening back to that Susan Young Gates quote at the very beginning, I want her to be able to live to be worthy of these things and aspire to that. Thank you so much, Bill, for this. This has been wonderful. Appreciate the three of you. Farah, Christy, Suzette, thank you so much and uh, just appreciate the insight of each of you. Thank you, Bill. One heart broken by a careless word A hundred voices cry so rarely heard A thousand eyes that live inside the dark Waiting for a spark of light One heart reaching for the least of them moves a hundred more to understand soon a thousand people called to serve change the world in time and light will rise from the shadows hope will spring from the driest land beauty is born Just sing for joy.